0: Fincher is famously great at being able to crowdsource fucked faces. And, you know, you see it in Seven in particular, is the film that really leaps out to me from his back catalog, but also Alien Three, actually. But the scene in Seven where the guy's like, I fucked her, man, he made me fuck her. It's like that guy's face is haunting and pops up in my mind like more times than it should, to be perfectly frank. (laughs) And, in zodiac he does such an amazing job of that obviously because the film is so long and compare it like he always makes long films right but it's like bush is one of his longest but also because of the scope of time that it covers and the age range things like that so you have these costume choices but in that basement scene the thing that really makes it and seals the deal for me is uh charles fleischer who has such an interesting face and the way that he's lit and the way that he's positioned and his vocal delivery and even the pacing between words you know the way he says things uh is just absolutely terrifying and really slow and haunting and unobvious choices you know like i think a lot of times I guess the stereotype of a horror movie serial killer you know to be honest two people from silence of the Lambs. it's your hannibal lecters it's your buffalo bills you know it's put your lotions in the basket and screaming precious or it's like hello clarice it's like one or the other and they're extremes in certain ways and the choices that he makes is this like accountant you know that's the vibe between the sweaters he's like i'm just an organist but i might pull out your organs is so haunting and specific that I just, I just really love that choice and the positioning and the physical location of the basement scene and you know the shifting weight above the floorboards and everything is obviously such a great tension builder. But I and Gyllenhaal's performance, right? He's a very generous performer. The way he's reacting is essentially like our flag as to how we should be feeling in that scene and it all just comes together so beautifully in a way that I remember seeing this film in theaters and just this scene my little heart my <laughs> little heart was just like banging against my boobs so hard in this moment I remember walking away and just it's not the scene that scares me now the scene that's the scene that scares me now is the one by the lake the day side like right? yeah. yeah because you're taught daytime is safe per the rules of a horror movie and that's kind of the brilliance about fincher and the brilliance about this story that he chooses to tell is that that's kind of what captivated people is it's a killer in a story that broke all the rules just when you thought you're safe you know it's 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 where you're not safe at all but this scene at the time was just one that i was just like oh my god it was so great and it was 100 percent down to you know a boy charles fleischer However, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, like, truly, you're a goat.
1: Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt. The film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is the 22nd episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Scorpio, Part 2. Our introduction today was provided by best selling author, screenwriter, journalist, as well as the host and writer behind our definitive series on 2001 cult classic, Josie and the Pussycats, Josie and the Podcats, Maria Lewis. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a massive help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with a weekly Rum and Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links for our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and the awesome Amy Reed are also in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me in Bob Vaughan's basement today are the one and only Robert Graysmith, Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt stalwart supporter of everything we do at One Heat Media Productions, a film critic, a writer, and editor at New York Magazine. He's also contributed to publications like the LA Weekly, the New York Times, the Village Voice, RIP, and is a director known for things like New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and the Barber of Siberia, Bilger Ibiri. Online veteran, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McQueenie. Host of the Screen Drafts podcast and Vidyots Trivia, Clay Keller. Post production wrangler, writer at the film stage and producer of the B Side podcast, Connor O'Donnell, and his co host on the B Side podcast, co founder of the film stage and also filmmaker in his own right, Dan Mecca. And newcomers to Zodiac Chronicle, Australia's mystery podcast Woodstein behind Finding Drago and its sequel, Finding Desperado, hosts of Total Reboot. Alexi Toliopoulos and Cameron James
2: I think I I might have even said this to you in the past but this movie is on a very short list of things that I wish I could get Men in Black technology to erase my memory and watch it for the first time every day yeah I just adore it. I come back to it so often, and it's not like it's a breezy, easy flick that you can chuck <laughs> on on a Sunday. It's like two and a half hours, and it's dense, and it, it lasts decades. But oh I God, just
3: Cam, you don't want 50, you don't want Men in Black technology. You need Fifty First Date Syndrome. <laughs> I know. I need 50 first
2: Date Syndrome. I need to fall because I, I do fall in love with it again every time I watch it. It's mm. it's and, and I don't love everything that Finch has ever done. But Mm. this world and the and the like the morality of it and the color palette of it, I could live in it. I fucking adore it.
3: Yeah, I think I'm right there with you, Cam. Like I remember seeing this in the cinema for the first time and just being like gobsmacked by it. Because I think I anticipated a movie much more in line with seven. Yeah. I didn't Mm. really expect like this is like a saga, this film, you know, mm. it's so all encompassing it. I think it is Finch's epic. And um, I, I I don't think I anticipated that at all. So maybe the first time I encountered it, it was just gobsmacked rather than like being able to embrace it. But in the years since I've probably watched it uh, like, you know, half a dozen times or so. And each time I come back to it and I'm still surprised by just going like, I think my la- the last time I watched the entire thing last year, My reaction was, I'm so glad that this is one of the best films ever made.
1: Every episode we've used the film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film sees Robert Graysmith descend into Bob Vaughn's cavernous lair of a basement in search of evidence that would finally validate his theory that Rick Marshall is indeed the Zodiac. This sequence is arguably the tensest moment of this entire crime epic. Ray Smith must contend with the revelation that his journey towards Zodiac and the immortality of the position of the person who could truly discover the identity of this serial killer who's tormented San Francisco has a cost, and that cost may indeed be his life. And yet, as the door shuts on this exchange, one can't help but be kind of giddy. We've just experienced such artful and intentional manipulation. So... In keeping with this subterranean vampiric lair, this week's theme is what we do in the shadows. Before we dive into the scene here's Bill abiri setting the table for all of the feelings and all of the moments that have led up to this tactical anti-climax
4: if you look at the way it it starts you know bob Bond meets him in his car and you know you see already that he's you know shrouded in darkness so yes. right then you're like uh-oh here comes <laughs> trouble right um i mean and the film obviously the film is the whole film has this kind of sickly yellow pallor and deep shadows and i mean the whole thing is shot in that way so it doesn't seem particularly out of the ordinary but you can already sense you know your spidey senses like oh something <laughs> and it, and it's and it's i think perfectly placed in that sense too because the, the whole film has been kind of winding you up in this way because nothing is getting resolved you know you, it's like you're getting more and more information and with each piece of information everything gets a little more tense but mm. there's never any resolution nobody's getting caught everything is either leading down a dead end or you're you know the, the inform the investigation is being foiled in some way like, mm. you know the handwriting doesn't matter this doesn't matter this part, yeah you know. and so you're you're so ready for something to happen, and what happens is, is this scene, and and of course, and it winds up not actually meaning anything. Like it's not, that's not the guy, and and it's it's I think maybe one of the, the the other thing that's kind of happening at this point. I mean, the way it builds up to the scene, this whole final section of the movie with Gray Smith kind of recreating the investigation, kind of you know, it's it's been four it's four years later, and he's. Or five—it's been a few years since you know, and 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 things have things have progressed, right? Robert Downey Jr. is like you know, basically completely gone in his boat. How, um, Houseboat Avery is what I've done to Houseboat Avery. You know, Mark Ruffalo's character is 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 a broken man at this point, and um, and 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 like the, the and the, the the music picks up, the editing picks up, you know, the 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 the, the um. The cinematography is, you know, the camera starts to glide. We're almost in this Spielbergian space where it's like the the, the young Eagle Scout is going, he's not even young anymore, but he is going to figure this out. Like we are in the part of the film where things get solved, where all that work is finally, he's, he's going here, he's going to these places. You know, he's the guy who, because he's not a, you know, because he's not a cop, he can actually you know, kind of make the necessary connections. He doesn't have to go buy the book. You know, everything is going to kind of be connected and he's, he's running around, he's doing all this stuff, the, the pace picks up. So you really get the sense that it is, you know, things are proceeding. And then he comes to this basement scene and suddenly everything stops and it's really slow and it's really scary. And it's at this point that he's just like, oh shit, what have I done? Yeah. And it's almost, I mean, the investigation doesn't end exactly at this point, but it almost ends at this point. Because it's kind of like, he's just like, oh, fuck, I'm going to get myself killed. Um, and, you know, he runs up against that sort of existential terror and, and, and bails. Uh, and it's the first time that he really bails on anything, right? I mean, it's the first time that he's just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's too scary. I should stop.
1: So now, let's get to the scene.
5: Mr. Vaughn?
6: Mr. Graysmith? Yes. Hi. You needed to speak to me? Yes. There's a coffee shop right on the corner. Why don't we just go to my home? Oh, I I don't want to put you out. It's no trouble at all. Where are you, parked?
5: Uh, just right, right there.
6: You can follow me?
5: Oh. Okay. Jacket? Um, no,
1: thank you. Okay, This way, please. Here's Clay Keller, Dan Mecca, Connor Ratliff and I discussing the beginnings of this great scene.
7: So they meet at this movie theater. I was trying really hard to see what the posters in the uh, poster boxes. I couldn't tell what any of them were. They're out of focus in the background, but he pulls up, it's raining, which is great. Love how much rain is in this movie. And uh, one of the many times in this film that Robert Graysmith talks to somebody through a partially opened car window. I love there's lots of like really odd recurring visual motifs in this movie. Uh, and I guess, you know, you 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 can read into all those as much as you want. I mean, I guess it is, you know, he Graysmith is always on the outside trying to look in, or I don't know, there's always a barrier, an invisible barrier between him and the truth. You can You can do whatever you want with that. There's also a lot of people wearing robes in this movie, I noticed this time.
1: I don't know. I, I, <laughs> a lot of bathrobes in this a lot, flick. A lot of bathrobes, but I think San Francisco is like made for a bathrobe, you know? It's like it's a like big a, bathrobe town. I, <laughs> so Bob
7: Bond drives up and he's introduced like all of the various Zodiacs are introduced with mm-hmm. his face and like 80% shadow. So r- right off the bat, that's a great way, a great mood to start this. He invites uh, uh Graysmith to go to his house They go to his house in the woods, it's pouring rain, he comes in, and this is like, this is like, it's Dracula's castle. He's inviting him into this castle. uh, And and there's a visual motif that I always just sort of noticed but didn't really pay much attention to in this movie that I was was watching it uh, uh, last night with my sister, who's a production designer, and right off the bat she's like, I love how yellow this movie is. It's a very, very yellow movie. And you get and this might be the yellowest scene in the whole movie. It kind of builds to this yellow fever pitch in this movie. Yes. Where the walls are painted yellow. The lighting on it on uh Graysmith is just pure yellow. Everything is yellow. It's so great. It's just like sickly yellow that, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was error appropriate, but it is also uh uh Again, it could be you know so many things. Obviously, the the characters in this movie have this obsession where they are just like bugs drawn to this, drawn to a light, mm-hmm. and so it can it can invoke the like you know cabin light that's being swarmed swarmed by gnats or whatever. Like they like yellowing pages of like a paperback book or something. It, it gives yeah. it this great sort of novelistic kind of physically novelistic quality to you know the uh, paperback book that it was that it was based on. Um, but then this scene comes out. He's so uh 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 Graysmith is following this lead, this this anonymous or this uh tip from this 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 guy who knew Bob Vaughn and Rick Marshall that uh Rick Marshall's you know handwriting uh is the closest match they've had to the Zodiac, according to Philip Baker Hall, who drinks like Paul Avery now.
1: <laughs>
7: the the handwriting stuff is fascinating in this movie. Like watching the the science of uh, investigation and um, criminal, or um, for, for, uh, forensic, uh, for watching forensic science yes. kind of developed throughout the course of this movie is very interesting as well. And none of it is an exact science and that's why they need three, four, five of these different non-exact sciences to sort of say the same thing. The
8: reason it's even more scary, and this is where the absorption comes in, is the movie trains you not unlike Grayson himself, himself right? because mm. they're using his book as like the blueprint right in a lot of ways you just have decided that it's Arthur Leal like you just you're like oh well, he's the killer so like let's let's find the evidence we need to find to prove that and so I'll just, yeah I'll go to this guy's house and then you forget, and then you're in the basement, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, and then you're like, what if I was on-? And so, like, and so in in when you're watching Gyllenhaal, who, who like, you know, I'm sure you'll get into this, like, Gyllenhaal's performance is kind of a, another thing that's criticized because of the his experience on the set and Fincher's experience with Gyllenhaal, but I find that to also be kind of unfounded because, like. His performance is obviously one of the many reasons it all works because, of course, his innocence is like yeah. You're in that basement with you with him, and only somebody like gray Smith, who's this like nerd who like can't get out of his own way because he's literally his heads in books, would allow himself to be in that basement. (laughs) Not any one of us. If he's like come down to my
1: basement, I'd be like, I'll stay here. Right, you go to the basement and get yeah. me this stuff.
8: <laughs> well, and like what in I- the direct counter is the Avery scene earlier, yeah. where you, there's like a moment of fear because you're like, oh yeah, he's going to visit some anonymous source, but then it's immediately cut with comedy, as is with most of the Paul Avery stuff, and it just like cuts to Daddy Jr. just be like, hey, I'm here to see a secret source. He's like yelling all <laughs> over the place, <laughs> and it's like very funny. Oh, very nice house.
5: Oh, thank you. Very rustic. Can I take your jacket? Um, no, thank you. Okay. This way, please.
6: Have a seat. Thank you. How about some
5: tea? Oh, no. I'm all right. Sure? Yes, I... I wanted to ask you uh, about a film that the avenue may have played while you were the organist there, uh, The Most Dangerous Game. It's a classic. RKO,
6: 1932, Fay Ray, Joel McCrae, Leslie Banks. We've run that
5: picture many times. In 68, 69? Mm, I'd have to check my records. Why? Do you remember the Zodiac?
6: This is about Rick Marshall, isn't it?
5: He was a projectionist there, right?
6: For a time, yes. But I have no occasion to correspond with him
5: these days. OK, well.
1: Here's Clay Keller with a kind of strange, but maybe on point theory about Rick Marshall and Bob Vaughn's past.
7: He gets tipped off by this character we never see. Yes. Some like other third, there's these like three dudes that worked at this movie theater who, and it's all in the performance and very subtle things in the writing that they all had a, in my imagination they had some sort of like a polyamorous <laughs> relationship going on. Just the way that Charles Fleischer when he's talking about um uh uh Rick Rick uh Marshall, Rick, Rick Marshall and he's like and I have no occasion to see him these like it is a total like oh these guys were were these guys were lovers or something like it's true that he, he held on to a secret film canister for this guy and then he gave it back. Like, also, I'm like, I want to know more about these. And then there's the third guy we never meet who is fucking spilling the tea on all of it. And I'm like, I, I want to know, I want to know more about these guys in their silent movie theater.
6: Or time, yes, but I have no occasion to correspond with him these days.
5: Okay, well, there is a connection between one of the Zodiac attacks and that film. You mean the symbol? Hold on.
6: The zodiac symbol on film. It's on the count now. It's trimmed by feature trail before it's shown, but it always arrives with it. Right then. The first time I saw it in the papers, I thought about that.
1: Here's Clay Keller, and Bill iberi on the Crosshairs theory.
6: And then
7: this is the, obviously, this is the great scene where Graysmith brings this movie poster, says, you know, you knew Rick Marshall, his handwriting is the closest we have. You know, he did all these movie posters. And then Vaughn says the immortal line, I do all of the posters myself. And it's like, oh, shit. Like, this is such a great goosebumps. Oh, no moment in this movie. And Graysmith starts the scene a little bit, you know, he's excited about the Rick Marshall lead, but he's gone down, as you said, a lot of rabbit holes. And he seems a little bit like, okay, this is another lead. I'm wet. I'm in this weird guy's house. I'm a little bit bored. You know, well, we'll see. He showed me the thing in the film reel. I'm not super convinced by that. And he's like, not there. When he says, I do all of the posters myself. The Jill acting in the scene is fantastic. But it, but look, and even in this scene, you know, j- j- jumping at, had a minute, You know, yes, you, you have the Zodiac, you have the crosshair symbol paired with the Zodiac thing in the watch. But also the uh, Bob Vaughn, as soon as he hears that, he's like, oh, you know, I always thought it was this. And he's got his own crosshair symbol thing that is circumstantially connected to most dangerous game that is connected to this. That's like, yeah, uh, Rick, Rick Marshall oh. has a few, a few less of the circumstantial things, you know, on, 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 on his docket. But he's also got a bunch of them. Yeah. so it is fascinating that when you're looking for things you tend to find them yes. uh but again in this case that's what's so interesting about this movie it can it can it can have can talk about that and it can bring up those ideas but
4: at the same time be like
7: oh but it was
4: definitely arthur Lee Allen. i mean we've had throughout over the course of the film we've had various speculations as to what the crosshair is and what it relates to and for him to be like oh that's you know what you see at the beginning of a movie you know and yeah. and of course this there is there is actually uh of some <laughs> there are a number of uh m- mystery fiction novels uh that have been written about like the uh the connections between like the rosicrucian cross and what goes up the leader at the beginning of a of a real of film and stuff like that so it's actually kind of there's a rich history there but but this is kind of the part where um fincher i think is is and vanderbilt obviously um but they're kind of bringing it back to the cinematic artifice itself and that's why in many ways this scene is kind of the most movie of the scene of the of the film like it's the scene where it's like oh right this is kind of what you came for and right here right before the end you're gonna get it um and it's, and it's and it is actually genuinely terrifying, um, so much so that you're like, you just want it to be over. you know yeah. like once it starts, just I just want it to be over. I'm just like I of I I about don't that. go into this basement. We got a tip that Rick left a,
5: a film canister here that he told you never to open. tip about a mysterious film canister. Is it true?: Yes. did you open it? No. May I see it?
6: Rick took it back in 1972. This tip is how you got it in your head that Rick is the Zodiac.
5: That and the poster. The poster. Um, The poster that Rick drew, the handwriting, is the closest that we have ever come to a match. Rick didn't draw any posters. No, he drew this one. Mr. Graysmith,
6: I do the posters myself. It's my handwriting.
5: I won't. I won't take any more of your time.
6: Why don't I just go and find out when we play that film?
5: But that's all right.
6: It's not a problem. They're just down in the basement.
5: Not many people have basements in California.
6: I do. Coming, Mr. Grissom.
1: Here's Clay Keller, firstly discussing that immortal line. Alexis Holiopoulos, Cameron James and I discussing the sort of unwanted kinship you can have with this level of obsession. And then Robert Graysmith himself talking about the fear of this scene, the authenticity of the delivery, and James Vanderbilt and David Fincher's reactions to discussing this scene with Robert Graysmith.
7: Hall, yeah, he, he he that that terror seeps in, but again at the ex- at the same time it is tempered with this excitement of he's even closer than he's ever been before. Yeah, and he's and he's uh, not ready to stop. And then he follows, and then the second immortal line in this scene: "Come down into my basement." Not many people in California have basements. I do. Like, oh my god! Like that 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 is a line that I. Uh, you know, I'm not someone who quotes movie lines in everyday life very often, but I love when the opportunity presents itself to bust out a not many people in California have basements.
2: That's the interesting part because when I was watching it, I was thinking as a screenwriter, my choice would be to save the reveal that he handwrites the posters till we're already in the basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. But I've watched this scene multiple times today, and I think it works better because it makes you think, what the fuck are you doing, Graysmith? Get the hell out <laughs> yeah. of there. But also it works better because it, it feels real. It feels like it's messy. You know, it's like mm. it happened. Um, and that's, that's, even, that's even fucking crazier.
3: Yeah. And I think yeah. as well, Cam, it's like you're so in the pocket with graysmith at this point like you're you you know how badly he needs to know this how badly he needs to uncover the answer and when you are possessed by that need to come Mm. to a conclusion to find something out when you're that close and when he uncovers that little clue of like oh it's actually charles fleisch's character that writes the posters i think i Understand why he has to go down into the basement, like why he I has think to so go too. down, I, I why think that, he's possessed to go down.
2: Yeah, so I, I think there'd be a part of you that's like, I'm invincible at this point, I've come this far, I'm about mm. to get an answer. There's no way that I could possibly be in harm's way.
1: Cam and Alexi are the producers and hosts of two absolutely terrific movie adjacent podcasts, Finding Drago and Finding Desperado. I'm going to play you a little trailer of their show because we go down a brief rabbit hole to talk about the obsession that they've already exhibited and part of the reason why I needed to have them as part of this show.
3: This is Finding Drago. And I'm Alexi Toleopoulos. I'm a podcaster, comedian and filmmaker. Basically, I'm a tremendous nerd. A little while ago, I was re-watching Rocky IV for a now-defunct film podcast I once hosted with my best friend Cameron James. Rocky IV, by the way, is the one where Rocky fights the Russian boxing machine Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren. In my extensive research on this film, which I conducted exclusively on Wikipedia, one sentence in particular really stood out to me as something extremely strange. Todd Noy's
2: 1989 book Drago On Mountains We Stand chronicles the rise of Ivan Drago after his defeat in Moscow. The book is affectionately referred to as Noy's final masterpiece.
3: I'd never heard of this book, or Todd Noy for that matter and I had some questions that I needed the answers to. One, who would write an entire novel about the bad guy from Rocky IV? Two, where could I find this masterpiece? And who the frickin' hell is Todd Noy? I didn't know it at the time, but my nerdy search for answers would be the tugging of the first thread of an unravelling mystery. About Ivan Drago, patriotic propaganda, the underground world of fan fiction, and fake identities.
2: Basically, it's a podcast. Alexei was given a book about Rocky IV, and he's trying to find out who wrote the book. It's like serial, but it's stupid as hell. Um, I'm Cameron James, by the way, I'm also on this podcast. (laughs) This is our search for the great
3: Australian author, Todd Noy. This is Finding
2: Drago.
1: I wanna cast both of your minds back to a couple of investigations that have happened on government dime in this country, Australia, where Thank we you. live. And, and one of them, I, I, I distinctly remember two men, angrily conversing about how someone they'd backed into a corner was refusing to admit that they had been cornered and that they would not (laughs) say and reveal a truth. And similarly, when all of the uh, round the world frustrations and huge institutions that bank on the fact that they verify world records refuse to acknowledge that they may have made (laughs) world record up or that some random person who says they're the contact for an elusive filmmaker who's living in the Spanish mountains is indeed the actual Spanish filmmaker himself making up a fake name to answer his own (laughs) inquiries and emails on a website. I distinctly remember two gentlemen whose obsessive qualities and tendencies I was, you know, rabidly listening to and feeling a kinship with going. These guys would go into the basement. These I, guys, yeah, you guys yeah. would be in that yeah. fucking basement. Th- that's the thing I wanted. I was desperate to talk to you guys on the show because I feel like there's so many people who I talk along the way who talk about obsessive tendencies, but knowing you guys a little bit and knowing the work that you've produced, I'm like, you guys are guys that I can see in this house and that I can see <laughs> in that basement <laughs> and with, no, with no thought of your own personal safety, but yeah. like, man, this is going to be a great funny story hopefully it (laughs) comes off
3: (laughs) cam's in there freaking out i'm just admiring all the posters asking questions about the movies when they played who was in them any special guests come to town
1: uh, oh I, can, God, I, can, I can totally see Cam going. Are you sure we have to go down? Like, you, it's
2: your basement, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, should... why, don't I, why don't you go down into the basement and you come back up and we'll stay up here and have a lovely hot cup of tea?
1: I'm just a bit damp from the rain and this delicious <laughs> hot cup of tea is gonna be
2: anchored to this d- dining room table. Why don't you go? I will say, when I was watching this the movie today, there was a lot of. I saw a lot of myself in Robert Graysmith, or at least in his portrayal by Hall, um, And it was a side of myself that I do not like, which is the obsessive side to the point where you're isolating everyone in your immediate orbit. Yes. You know, like the guy, lets, the guy lets a couple of beautiful women go, his kids barely know him, <laughs> you know, and it's all for the, he's a cartoonist, just draw cartoons, but he's obsessed with solving this crime. And I, I had immediate flashes of the nights that I would stay up till 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Listening back to interviews with people that we've interviewed on our investigations and just for nothing. Like it, you know, and I just wanted to turn to him and say, please put the puzzle book down and go cuddle Chloe seventy, please. <laughs>
9: <laughs> so I go there and I'm showing this stuff. I'm inside this house. Nobody knows I'm there. The Orange VW is parked out front. And I've gone in this very sweet old man's house. Well, he's not that old, but he's got white hair. He looks sort of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, that kind of look <laughs> like a fake wizard. And we're talking about this stuff. And I said, what do you make of this? And it's the cross circle that, uh, that zodiac signs. He says, that's a so-and-so leader. It's part of my, my job. That's how you tell the end of uh, in a film or where to start it and so on. It's a countdown. And so we go on and on again, and he says, well, that's amazing and I I, and he didn't do the posters it's somebody else that worked there who eventually we figured was Rick Marshall and so we're gonna go in the basement well I have the tape recorder going I'm I'm taking notes and I go down there and it's exactly like the movie that I gave (laughs) uh, I gave Fincher the tape I gave him everything the time of year I think he got everything right Uh, and we go in the basement and I'm down there and now what I've come with is some knowledge that I'm not supposed to know that may be possible that Zodiac has put incriminating evidence into one of the film canisters. Yes. Now the basement is full of these. And if you open it, it's gonna blow you up. So I'm listening and I'm I thought, well, wow. I kept saying to him, Are we alone? And he said, Yeah, or is everybody safe. It's, you're alone. And I hear this heavy tread of footsteps above. So that's when I sort of freaked out a little bit.
7: That really came out of two talking to Robert and saying, "When do you, do you feel like you were ever in physical danger? Or when were you the most scared? And him sort of saying, it was this thing. And then I remember sitting there with him and Fincher and Fincher going, why did you go into the basement? Like, it's like, I don't, why would you do that? And he, and, and it was, it was so interesting. I think he said something along the lines of, I didn't want to be rude. Oh. And, which felt, v- very real to me. Can we just the, say that that is yeah.
1: a theme of Fincher yeah. later? Like there's that amazing scene in his, obviously a very different serial killer filing cabinet yeah. investigation movie, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo of like, mm-hmm. you knew something was wrong.
0: You yes, felt exactly. in
1: danger and you didn't want to be rude. And that's now why you're tied up in this thing. And it's like exactly. that impulse is so yeah. scared, like deeply scary. And even, you know, um, manifest in this film too but all the more explicit later in another film for fincher you know that's Mm -hmm. just an incredible thing
9: let me ask you something why don't people trust their instincts they sense something is wrong someone is walking too close behind them you knew something was wrong but you came back into the house did i force you did i drag you in no all i had to do was offer you a drink. It's hard to believe that fear of offending him is stronger than the fear of pain, but you know what? It is.
1: Here's Connor Ratliff taking us back to the Zodiac basement.
10: The thing, too, about that sequence is the... Just to bring it back into step with those all the other murder sequences, right, is that they all sort of Get more genre-y, right? Mm. As they go on, right? Like where, because I think even before the uh, Kathleen John sequence um, is the is the Paul Stein sequence, yeah. right? The cab sequence, right? Which is which feels even on on its face a little bit more kind of heightened and genre and stylized than obviously the Lake Berryessa scene, and so you're just. Pro- but you don't, you're not with Paul Stein when that happens, right? And then no. you're with Kathleen Johns, right? So you're just more and more getting sucked into a horror movie as yeah. a viewer, right? So that by the time Hall's in that house, you're like, well, there's no way you're not dying here. Like, I know you're <laughs> not dying here, but like, you're gonna die in this house, Jake, what are you doing? And then the way that it's shot, which I think, I think th- this is what bothers me when people criticize the scene because it just to me is such a wonderful exercise in perspective in a couple ways. The way that it's shot, it confines itself more and more and more until when Jake Jake Gyllenhaal's running out of that house, he's like the only thing in frame. Mm. So you get this sense that any moment he turns a corner, he's gonna run into whoever, whether it's Rick Marshall or what, right? Like he's gonna run into whoever was walking on the floorboards above. And so it's this wonderful bit of like 10 to 15 seconds where you're just like, oh God, like you're just this ball of anxiety. And it, uh, I don't have fucking rules. Like it just, it, (laughs) it, it, it like, because you could also watch it from afar. And if you were to strip the the scene of its music, which the David Shire score of this movie is like doing work like throughout the whole movie, but the thing of like, if you were to strip it from any sort of aesthetics, it's so innocuous, nothing happens, yeah. right? He goes into a guy's house, they talk about some movie posters, they go into a basement and like, so it's this, it is this wonderful exercise in, and like Dan said, like, like in how you've sort of been trained to watch the movie at this point. Um, and it's, it's, it's this interesting culmination sort of all along the way to kind of get you there. And I, I love the way that the movie kind of oscillates between sequences like that and the more kind of all the president's many kind of journalism, uh, sort of gumshoey stuff, right? Which, which is also equally satisfying, but in a totally different way. I
6: do. Coming, Mr. Graysman? Original Studio One sheets I always kept for myself. Cheapo knockoffs like you brought today, and I end up tossing into the back alley.
1: Here's Cameron James, Alex Celioulos, Clay Keller and I talking about Charles Flusher as Bob Vaughan and his house and going into the basement.
3: Especially like this is a house from like 1915 or something. Mm. Of course, it's going to freak around. Oh, gorgeous house. I mean, and so lucky he's got a basement. California houses (laughs) rarely have
2: them. It's lucky that he's got California, mainly bungalows, Mm. mainly Spanish adobe style. This is like a barn house. Yeah. It looks, you know, it looks like you said, like it's from the 1815. It's got like a big X across across mm-hmm. like it in wood. I Actually, yes. I love I love the design of this uh, scene. Mm-hmm. Like from the moment we step inside uh, his house, it's like you're stepping into a coffin. I think it's it's that perfect manipulation from Fincher mm-hmm. where we go into the into the house. It's all dark mahogany, like we're inside of mm-hmm. uh, like a wooden box, yeah. and the wallpaper is yellow, like mold, and just linoleum
1: like linoleum floors too like i just feel yeah. like it was like my grandma's like house you know just had these yeah. linoleum floor and like that kitchen everything's orange everything looks yeah. like it's
2: unclean and the fridge is so old it's yeah. not yeah. like a contemporary fridge it's like a 20 it's like the first icebox <laughs> it's, <laughs> the, I-bo- it's the ibox one it's the ibox one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's so good but my favorite moment, I think, has to be the moment that uh, that uh, Fleischer says, let's go down into the basement. That's There's a really great moment there where all of the lighting from this point on almost becomes single-source lighting. Mm-hmm. From the moment he turns the basement light on, he, he becomes lit up like Nosferatu, yeah. Yeah. and he stays lit up like that the entire time. And if any actor, if any comedian in the world had a face to be lit up like nosferatu (laughs) fucking roger rabbit this guy (laughs) has got a bizarre mug on him i've watched it a few times today and it's it is something that i do just pop on because some kind soul has chucked it up on youtube (laughs) you just be like zodiac a basement scene and just watch it for minutes but it's great because once that shift happens when they descend into the basement light is like the way that fincher uses light in this scene is just i'm so in awe of it it's all overheads Mm. so like fleischer is moving in and out of shadows in this kind Mm. of serpentine way where you're sort of like "Ooh, is he isn't he like is he is he evil are we being led into like a you know hannibal lecter type lair or something like is ted levine down here (laughs) with his dick tucked between his legs what's going on (laughs) And then the way that he shoots Gyllenhaal too is great. I only noticed it for the first time today. It's like, this is all eye level shooting when we're looking mm. at Fleischer, but whenever the reverse is on Gyllenhaal, it's much lower and tilted up so that pretty much all behind him is the, is the ceiling above him to mm. make him feel literally like it's a claustrophobic shot. He is in mm. a coffin, he's underground, he can't escape. I could watch it again and again and again, and it's just constant little reminders that Fincher is a psychopath who knows exactly what to do <laughs> yeah. to make you feel uncomfortable. Every choice in it, it's so great.
7: As you said, down into the literal rabbit, like Smith is now, thinks this guy might be Zodiac, and he's willing to follow him into a basement. A basement that is not only creepy because it's a basement, but a base, it's a clue. It's yeah. one of the clues is that the guy has a basement okay. well and thank God for uh, Vanderbilt and Fincher for you know these guys know how to tell a movie story they see the sense of're like oh this is a scene <laughs> yes. this is gonna this is gonna be our horror scene I mean that's yeah. the other thing this whole movie has had bits little bits of horror yeah you know, like the way that the killings are staged and shot are pure horror but then oh. it'll go but then, but then it like eases back into long stretches that are particularly in-your-face horrifying, except for, like I said, that kind of simmering on unease and anxiety underneath everything. This is the crescendo of the, this this is the horror scene in the movie Mm. with all of the tropes, all of the pacing, all of the lighting, all of the, all of the, all of the shadow and the, the creepy you know the cobwebs and the production design and the, the creak of this of the footstep. I love this is the first time I've noticed you actually you see the board sort of depress a little bit, the floorboard Knock-offs
6: like you brought today I end up tossing into the back alley. You live alone? Uh most dangerous game ran in May 69. So that would be about nine weeks before the first Zodiac letter, correct?
5: Uh
1: Alexi Alexi Toleopoulos, Cam James and I, going deep on the man, the myth, that is Charles Fleischer.
3: There's a lot to it. Like this scene is that last step where you're like, he's really on the precipice and he's like sunken so deep and... It always shocks me, like, where this part comes in the film because it's, like, the final red herring, really. Mm. And it feels like the most dangerous part of the film. I think it's one of Fincher's most thrilling scenes. But Mm. what makes it so thrilling? It's, like, you know, you're so used to Fincher as being, like, this incredible auteurist who can, like, ratchet up tension through shot selection and through editing and through pacing, like, in camera or in the editing suite. Uh, and he's a master of that. But for me, it is all hinging on two incredible performances. And one mm. of them is by one of the great modern uh, uh, leading men of our time. And the mm-hmm. other one is by Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, I did a little comedic switcheroo. <laughs> he he's it's flipped, flipped flip. it
2: around, folks. <laughs> but, you got to watch uh, your back with this guy because he's... <laughs> Lop it all over the place.
3: <laughs> but I've had a lifelong fascination with Charles Fleischer as an actor. I think we as both have. Yeah, absolutely. We both have
2: that. It's a, it's something that we share, and it's something that we've never had an outlet to talk about. <laughs> we
3: think. hold custody over this obsession with one of the strangest comedians in the history of the medium.
2: So, for the people listening at home um, who don't know Charles Fleischer his most famous role apart from this one is in one of our favorite films he plays yeah. the titular character in roger rabbit he's the voice of roger rabbit um and he was present on set during the yeah. filming of roger rabbit which we've talked about i think a little bit before dressed alexis dressed yeah
1: as roger rabbit if i'm not mistaken can you guys correct <laughs> yeah. me if i'm wrong yeah.
3: yeah yeah he's yeah. dressed yeah. as roger rabbit he's doing all the big acting he's doing the he's like all on set yeah and sitting uh,
2: in a chair behind the camera yeah
3: he's not there and he's not on screen he's never like rotoscoped over with roger rabbit he's never sitting in frame like they there was no (laughs) need for him to do that but it comes down to something that you know i have to credit him for it when i was younger i thought this is wacko this is absolutely wacko Mm. stuff as my uh, love for Who Framed Roger Rabbit as a film has changed, it's grown deeper. It's grown, for me, being more impressed by it to the point where I declare that Bob Hoskins' performance in that film is the finest ever put to celluloid, (laughs) the finest in (laughs) cinema history, because he invents a new form of acting.
4: How the hell did
9: you get in here?
6: Through the mail slot. I thought it would be best if I waited inside. See, it's how I'm wanted for murder. No kidding. Just talking to you could get me a rap rating and a betting. Wait a minute.
3: Anybody know you're here?
6: Nobody. Not a soul, except, uh...
3: Who?
1: Well, you see, I didn't know where your office was. So I asked the newsboy. He didn't know. So I asked the fireman, the greengrocer, the butcher, the baker. They didn't know. But the liquor store guy,
6: he knew. (laughs) Hey! Hi! Get away! Come on! Hey, buddy! Don't come out! <laughs> Do You're making a big mistake! God. I didn't kill
1: anybody! Up, I swear! Yeah. This whole thing's a setup! A scam! A frame job! Ow! Oh, Eddie! I
4: could never hurt anybody! Ow! Oh, my whole purpose in life is to make people
3: <laughs> I think that I credit Charles Fleischer so much now with making that work by bringing that character to life helping bob hoskins develop this performance and helping him play off something because he's a very traditional Mm. actor he needs that and i think bob hoskins took it for granted and then as it goes on as the process goes on he valued it so much um, with helping him bring this movie to life and i think a lot of that responsibility with bringing that movie to life falls on the insane genius of Charles Fleischer. The guy, I do think that he is a genius.
2: I think insane being the like operative word of that phrase (laughs) because, you know, I I really love that performance. I love Roger Rabbit. It's a favourite. But Charles Fleischer, I couldn't tell you what the rest of his uh, career is. I've seen him pop up in tiny roles in things here and there. He's in Funny People playing himself for about 30 seconds. Um, He's apparently a stand-up comedian before, you know, before all of this. Mm. Yet it's what, it's of that era in showbiz and in Hollywood in the 1980s where kind of everybody was a stand-up comedian. The comedy <laughs> boom is a real thing. Like stand-up comedy started Huge. getting televised. There was every network had stand-up specials and stand-up half hours and showcases. Mm-hmm. So kind of anybody who was an actor trying to make it in L.A., could just say, hey, guess what? I'm also a stand-up comedian and get on TV yeah. and have a half-hour special. And the three of us all watched Charles Fleischer's I mean, half-hour one-night stand thanks today. To, thanks to Alexi finding <laughs> it. I was just watching it and I was like,
1: I was more gobsmacked than Bob Hoskins would have been with a guy sitting behind the camera yeah. going like, <laughs> like, I, I I was like,
2: what is this? What is like, how going how do you describe on? it? How do you describe his act? It's, I, I want both of you guys to try and describe his act to the people it, listening at home.
1: It's so, it's, it's like,
2: it's every bad idea for a sketch all stitched <laughs> together at the
1: same time. Like, there's no rhyme <laughs> yes. or reason. And I didn't know what, like, it's a half an hour comedy, it's a half an hour comedy special, which actually is like, so it's like 27 yeah. minutes. Yeah. And there's yeah. a three minute sketch about how he became a stand up, which is, a video sketch of him performing stand-up to cows as That's a sight crazy. gag to come on stage. And you're like,
6: Growing up in
1: a none minute. of this is I funny.
6: So many things, a cowboy, a fireman, a baseball player, an astronaut, even a secret agent. But these weren't practical jobs. So after college, I decided I wanted to be a comedian. But my father, a businessman who never told me one joke, didn't like the idea. We had a big fight, and I left for California. On the way, I fell in love with a farmer's daughter who had these really hip cows that helped me develop my comedy material. At first, they were kind of resistant. But soon, it was divine inspiration. Come on, it's a funny joke. Come on, guys. Okay, I got another one. Two cows walk into a bar, right? One cow is real big. One co-
2: come on, it's a funny. Ooh, yeah, that's such a like that's a relic of a bygone era, the the mm. fi- the 5-minute sketch before the special. <laughs> you rarely see that these days. Yeah, it's like And you no, know what, whenever all. you do see it, sometimes cool comedians do it. Like Rory Scoble has one before his mm. special. Mulaney has one. I skip them every time. I yeah. fucking hate I hate Get the pre. Get to
1: the special Get to the <laughs> yeah. special
3: Yeah Yeah It's it's a bizarre special Right Cam Because <laughs>
5: yeah.
3: I think there is Like the crazy thing about it It's like there's immense talent On display But The communication to the audience Is so odd Like he has this very particular style Which is very like ah Like spitting it all out Really And the way that I kind of saw it was It's like Robin Williams in how like eclectic and eccentric it is Mm. but without the warmth like there's something (laughs) there's like a barrier there that is fascinating like the barrier is what I'm drawn to with Charles Fleischer because it's just like it's a guy trying desperately to communicate with people and some of it's getting through like the audience is going crazy at certain points because
1: he's like there is a couple of great comedians that do crowd work specials
2: yeah, and, yeah, and- I love them. I'm, a, I'm a suck. It's my favorite part of comedy. Well, I can tell you, I'll tell you, like, um, this is a guy that came out of the comedy club scene in LA, the Comedy Store, the Laugh Factory, um, and these are smaller rooms, like you know, 100 200 seats. He would have been doing if you went and saw Charles Fleischer in the '80s. And God, I wish we had a time machine. Oh my to go, so back go back to the there. 80s. We would have, like, Gosh. it would have been all crowd work. He would have been no. up on stage. It's dark. It's like a dim room. He's doing crowd work and going out of his weird like, interactions with the crowd into these impressions or bizarre little one-man sketches. I could see it working in a club. In a club, um, it
1: feels like it could work. But in a the
2: theatre, it's like... It's and he's like, wearing
1: a suit. He's up there in a suit. What is going on?
2: And he's standing yeah. in front of a barn. All of it's crazy. None of it is connecting to me at all. Alexi, that thing you talked about uh, just then about, you know, comparing him to Robin Williams. I love Robin Williams. I've watched his earliest special, his HBO special from the 70s. And it's similar, like it is just free form, improvisational. Mm. He's doing crowd work. He's doing little sketches and characters. But I think the big difference is Robin is always looking to connect because he's the neediest Mm. person who ever lived. And he's just looking, he's making eye contact with people in the crowd. If they're not on his wavelength, he panics and retreats and tries something different. I think Charles Fleischer isn't even looking at people. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the special, he's like looking at the ground or he's looking at his own hands. I don't think he... I think that they are a hindrance. Like, he doesn't want them there. He just wants to be sitting in a room doing these voices and sketches to himself.
3: It's slowing him down.
2: Yeah, and that's why I think Roger Rabbit is the ultimate expression of his talents, Mm -hmm. maybe with the exception of this scene, because he is not even present on screen for it. He's just getting to do Mm -hmm. the silly shit behind the camera. That's what
3: I find fascinating about him because we look at his comedy style, and you, you often you see like a comedian uh that is a multifaceted performer like Charles Fleischer, and you see their stand up as kind of the most pure expression of who they are. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case here because when we're talking about this film, Zodiac and his performance in Zodiac, and when you talk about who framed Roger Rabbit i really do believe that this is an intensely collaborative actor whether it is in like deep process or in combining performances together to come to some sort of cohesive uh cohesive wholeness at the end of it and Mm. i think that seeing him as a solo performer is so different because it's just like kind of unhinged it's playful it's erratic but seeing him in these collaborative modes he always has like this goal of like finding the unified performance. And I think that it's interesting to compare and contrast who friend Roger Rabbit and Zodiac because they're like both like investigative noir films in completely (laughs) different ways. But both of these examples is two handers where he is the second banana who is enhancing another performance and enhancing the scenes around him. And I think that It's his performance here in Zodiac is to the same caliber as his performance Hmm. in Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
2: I 100% agree.
3: I also read something really interesting that um, Fleischer had known Gyllenhaal since he was like young. His kids went to the same school as him. So he like took his kids to Gyllenhaal's house like trick or treating and stuff. So he always felt really comfortable in like whatever they were creating together and despite like the challenges of being in a fincher film where you know he's going through these many 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 takes and i think part of the beauty of the way fincher does like hundreds and hundreds of takes of the same actions over and over and over again is that it just for professional performers of Fleischer's caliber and of Fleischer's like longevity. He's been around for a really long time acting in all kinds of movies yeah. and TV series. I think you get to a vulnerable place with someone like that by like mm. breaking them mm. down. And especially someone off the top of my head, I cannot think of another comedian that uh has been directed by Fincher. I'm sure there's someone, like a big example that I'm forgetting, but we were talking about it earlier with Fleischer. There is a neediness to the comedian in, uh, as far excuse, as their performance Excuse me.
1: Goes. How dare you? Tyler Perry.
3: Thank you very much. In oh, Gongo. yes. Oh, so. of Gentlemen. Uh, so. Of course. Gentlemen. One of the great comics. We love Tyler. <laughs> we love Tyler I, Perry. I,
2: I love that Tyler Perry performance. I think it's like, yeah, it's, me too. it's really sensational in, in Gongo. Emily and Tyler Perry. She's yeah. funny. She's yeah, funny. Yeah, she's
1: a, she's, she's, a star. she's my favorite comedian.
3: My she name. is awesome. You know my nickname for Tyler Perry is Tyler, the creator of Medea and Medea's family <laughs> reunion, and Medea
2: goes to prison, etc.
3: <laughs> but I think there's like an inherent neediness to like the comedian that is utilized so well here in feeling that need for that like immediate uh, response and for the immediate response to be like do it again. I think yeah. it breaks down. Fleish's performance to this really vulnerable place that adds to all of the anxiety of it all so beautifully and I th- I just think that he's I mean I freaking love the guy I think he's one of my favorite character actors <laughs> well, yeah, of all time.
2: I, I was thinking today if you played this scene and any scene from roger rabbit side by side you could make the case for him being a really fantastic actor <laughs> yeah. yeah like it's the range on display is insane he's so slow and quiet and menacing in this sequence and then you know in roger rabbit he's a fucking goofball who <laughs> fucks the hottest girl of all time
3: <laughs> there's a really great interview and actually, I can probably say this like hand on heart, honestly. Maybe the best interview of Leno's career, he's interviewing Charles Fleischer, I think, when he's guest hosting Tonight's Show. And Fleischer's there to promote Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Fleischer's just so open with talking about like how he creates that performance and like how he goes, well, you know, it's a commit, it's a cartoon character. I've got to give it a speech impediment and all of that. And it just exposes how thoughtful he is when it comes to like creating character creating the vulnerabilities for characters finding the motivations for characters and him saying that how much he appreciates and loves roger rabbit he's even wearing like a roger rabbit brooch the movie's not even out yet he's wearing like a roger <laughs> rabbit brooch and he would have made about, that <laughs> no doubt like that's not no that's doubt. not merch no doubt. he would have no made that shit. <laughs> but he talks about how playing roger rabbit was like the closest he's ever come to being himself in oh any kind God. of like creative capacity and I think Until that kind Nosferatu
1: of like Bob yeah.
3: born. <laughs> <laughs> I think it like speaks Making to like what an eccentric the this guy is right like that he's able to like that is himself and then he's able to transform into like this much smaller nuanced strange sad little man in this film mm. who is enjoying the weirdo company that he's creating in this moment I mean, I love Charles Fleischer. My heart breaks for him and my heart mends for him. I think he's a true genius. <laughs> yeah.
6: Do you think he saw the film in our theater
5: and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and you? no
1: he's alexi toliopoulos cameron james clay keller drew mcqueenie and i discussing charles fleischer's bob Vaughan relishing in this torment of robert graysmith and god's favorite idiot as drew mcqueenie puts it as mr robert graysmith
3: i think one of the great beauties of this scene as well is just to watch it over and over again, like, just seeing how differently it plays each time, when, especially when you look at his performance, you look at Fleischer's performance, where you can kind of just see, like, this is just... It's a different scene for this guy where he's just yeah. like, yeah, kind of helping this guy out, a little bit offended mm. by some of the accusations being brought around, but still kind of enjoying the company, enjoying the discussion, and you know, he doesn't really see anything wrong with going down to the basement. He's mm. kind of being friendly. it's playing around with the manners of it, but there's this beautiful moment in those last moments of that scene where mm. Hall's run up the stairs. He's waiting at the door. He can't get out and Fleischer basically walks to him and almost like lunges at him to unlock the door and open it. And then when Great Smith runs away, Fleischer like says goodbye and just has like this tiny smirk. Like he's been yeah. delighted I, by this weird experience. It's my favourite
2: part of the I movie. I was just going to say, I'm so glad
1: you guys see it too because I yeah. said that and I'm like, I feel like it's him going, wasn't that a blast? Was that just I think not he a, thinks so much it fun? It was so funny. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. I think at a certain point during this scene, he starts to realize that this is hilarious. And I think that happens when they're in the basement and when he, mm-hmm. when he disappears into the shadows for a second and says, yeah. do you think he saw the film in our cinema and was inspired by it? Yeah. The way he says inspired is so comical to me that he's, he's having fun. He kind of yeah. thinks, yeah. oh, this poor dork. He thinks <laughs> it's me. I want to freak him yeah. out. And that's the rest of the scene. Is you can watch it both ways now. It's like it's very scary if you watch it thinking Robert graysmith might be in the presence of the Zodiac Killer. Or it's pretty funny if you watch it <laughs> <laughs> thinking like this guy is fucking with Robert graysmith
7: At the end of the scene, it's real that maybe he this is just a weird dude who's fucking with him. Yeah which is great there are you know e- even if someone's not the zodiac there are psychos and weirdos all over the place and if you're l- go looking for a psycho you're going to find other psychos and i just i love that about this scene. realizing it
11: yeah i and i think the the scene is first of all the casting of charles fleischer is so brilliant but like a lot of guys of that generation in comedy there is a hostility Mm. underneath the humor of charles fleischer Mm. if you've ever seen charles's stand-up act there's this anger that is just kind of right there and i think part of what made roger so engaging as a performance is that roger has this sort of explosive energy this big volatility and fleischer has all of that packed into this little weird frame of his Mm. and in whether it's his stand-up or whether it's other performances he's given, there is always this sense of a kind of malice underneath things that Fleischer isn't balanced completely. So <laughs> no. already, it's beautiful casting because there is something a little slightly off about him as a performer. It's great. And I think Fincher leans into it. There is a a natural oddness to the way he and Graysmith interact. And I think Gyllenhaal is brilliant casting. I, I truly think that once Hall started leaning into his inner weirdo and because on the outside, he's an underwear model. Of course. On the inside, he is a freak of the highest order.
1: <laughs>
11: anybody who's a fan of Nightcrawler, anybody Nightcrawler. who's a fan of this, anybody who's a fan of the really extreme work he's done. You realize Hall's a mutant deep down <laughs> yeah. inside. And I think there's this great weirdness to him as Graysmith, this this feeling that even if he wasn't obsessed on this case, he he doesn't quite fit into the Chronicle. Like, he's an odd bird who just kind of sits at the edge of the newsroom, and he's watching people anyway, and... It takes a lot to get him to engage with other people. He only does it here because they have information he needs for the puzzle he wants to solve. There's this, it's like an inconvenience to have to involve people in any of it, but (laughs) Oh, well, here we go. And I think part of that is why he is sort of a blessed idiot throughout the film that kind of stumbles into things, whether it's information that he's just so dogged that he doesn't know he's not supposed to keep digging till he finds it, or whether it's, this situation that he walks into not even thinking it could be dangerous. Um, some people just kind of get to be God's idiots and just have a bubble that protects them. I had a friend who was like that, who had zero radars, situational radar. We were one night walking down a street in Los Angeles and it was a side street, dark. There's no lights overhead. It's 1130 at night. And as we're walking, a van pulls up beside us and it starts to track us. And I immediately... Go on edge. And I can feel the hair on my arms stand up and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. And the van door opens and they pull ahead of us to cut us off at the corner. And then somebody inside the van says, wait, Kevin, my friend's name. And luckily, one of the guys in the van happened to recognize my friend. And then they all got out and laughed and told us, oh, we were about to fucking jack you. So it was this where my radar was going up. He would have never known. He's just walking along. He's talking to me. Van pulls up and he's like, oh, Van, hey, what's up? Zero sense that he's in danger. Graysmith, I think that is a strength for him. The fact that he doesn't know to be afraid, the yes. fact that he doesn't know to stop asking certain questions is one of the reasons that he gradually got traction on this thing. But it's also it a scene like this shows you just how precarious that was. Nobody would have known where he was or what he was doing. or He didn't have anybody who was he was answering to or reporting to. There was no chain of command here. No. Just a lunatic poking at the edges of this giant stack of bodies that he, you know, I, I just like to know. I just need the answer. I just want to know. And yeah, I, I think there is real fear in that scene and he never it, it, it's never overtly a horror scene he never tries to ladle it on to make it more than it is it is simply that feeling that you're in the wrong place that you've asked the question that sets somebody on edge the moment he mentions rick marshall and the handwriting and the mood in that room changes it's an there's where you talk about incredible performance work nothing overtly changed. fleischer doesn't get mad he doesn't threaten him he doesn't go crazy but everything changes between them. The air in that room changes and it sucked you just out. It sucked
1: out of the room. He just tilts his head and just that, it's like- And it's, it's like, like he
11: didn't hear himself say it. Fleischer heard it and Fleischer's <laughs> like, wow, you didn't even hear what you just said. All right, okay, all right. And then for the rest of the scene, there's that sense that it's like, is he going to do something because of the insult, because of just the sheer the, the, the sheer audacity of what Graysmith asked him. And I you almost worry that even if this guy's not the Zodiac, there's an offense that's happened here now. And now there's a real grievance between these guys. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's just a remarkable piece of tension that is organic. It's not goosed. It's not artificial. It's not like a cat jumping off of a trash can to create a fake scare. This is what real fear feels like.
5: No. Thank you. Thanks for everything. You're welcome. It's locked.
6: Smith.
1: Some closing thoughts from Bill Beery and the one and only Robert Graysmith talking about his meeting with Charles Fleischer. Unfortunately, not in a basement.
4: Uh, a, 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 Someone who's a great draftsman, like Picasso, yes. was a great draftsman, right? And Picasso could draw anything he wanted yeah. um, and make it look perfect. But you know his artwork is abstract. It's crazy, whatever. Or William Faulkner, right? I mean, you read a paragraph. I remember in, in middle school, I read a you know when they were teaching us about proper sentence construction and and not to do run-on sentences. I, I picked up a Faulkner book. <laughs> oh, no, <to>, what? Like, <laughs> uh, excuse me. in the dust, yeah, <laughs> or sanctuary, or intruded, intr- intruded in the dust, or one of those. Um, and just the opening paragraph is just oh, it's like a page of just like. You know, just a run-on paragraph and just nonsense almost. And and I remember I took this to my teacher. I was like, "This thing you're teaching us, like, here's a guy who won a Nobel Prize. Like, what's going on here?" And I thought I'd caught him. I was like, "Ah, oh, I got this guy." <laughs> and he's like, "I I guarantee you that if William Faulkner had to sit down and write a proper paragraph, he would." he would write the greatest paragraph you've ever read in your life and everything about it would be perfectly correct. Like, he knows how to write. Once he's got that down, then he can digress and do all these other things. And this is, you know, what I love about the scene is, I mean, Zodiac is a beautifully made film, you know, very tense, very, you know, everything happens, I think, at the right moment and everything. But it's such an odd film in so many ways. And for all the reasons that you've already explored in your podcast, you know they're all these like little things missings you know some and we're getting to the end and it's getting to the end and, and it's like finch saying okay fuck you let me show you what i can do <laughs> right if this was a regular horror movie it would have just been scenes like this yes and he's like don't worry i know what i'm doing <laughs> right it's kind of that like final it's not really nothing is about reassuring about the scene but there is a little bit of reassurance that the guy who made the movie knows what he's doing and he's going to give you that sort of, satisfaction is still the wrong word, but he's gonna give you that satisfaction of, he's going to deliver a terrifying, terrifying, terrifying scene, even if it doesn't actually amount to anything. And what's beautiful about it right at the very end as Ray Smith is leaving and Vaughn is like bye bye and and you can see like little smile cracks on his face right before he closes the door and he's like got him (laughs) you know and that too is mysterious like who is this guy what was the story here
9: well I'm uh, Charlie Fleischer when I was at the premiere remember this shooting Zodiac is about everything before a movie gets made (laughs) so it's it's like he's in the lobby so I, I met my my kids met him and he starts away and he turns. and he said, good night, Mr. Graysman. Wow, I love that. He goes another three steps, and then he goes, good night, Mr. Graysman. And I thought, and he did it three times, and it was, just got further and further away. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, there's my tombstone. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's great. But I, liked, I just loved him to death. He was so wonderful.
1: That concludes the 22nd episode of Zodiac Chronicle Scorpio part two. The next episode, Capricorn one, will be out in a week's time. Don't miss the penultimate episode of the series. So many amazing guests lined up. Please be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all of our upcoming episodes across all of our shows. Zodiac Chronicle, Miami Nights, The Blues Brothers, and too much movie if you can't get enough Unplug zodiac sessions many of which have never been heard before are all going to be available on the one heat minute patreon exclusively which is linked in our show notes if you're not already a patron this episode of zodiac chronicle was researched, written produced and presented by me blake howard the music of zodiac chronicle is composed and produced and performed by chris duffy the duff of los espinas our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reid. They're still available. Check out the link. You can buy one to commemorate the series. And you can also find Amy on Instagram at ai.me.me or via email if you want to commission her at amy.reid0310 at gmail.com. And it's kind of fitting. We've been using Arthur Lee Allen and Mr. John Carroll Lynch to say goodbye, but I think for this episode. Until next time.
6: Night, Mr. Graysmith.